The Origins Podcast is now a part of the Origins Project Foundation. Please consider supporting the podcast and the foundation by going to www.originsprojectfoundation.org. Hi, and welcome to the Origins Podcast. I'm your host, Lawrence Krauss. This week, we had the remarkable opportunity to visit with the filmmaker Werner Herzog at his home in L.A., and it was a remarkable conversation. Werner is not only one of the most important filmmakers in the last 50 years, indeed, Francois Truffaut called him the most important filmmaker alive at the time, but he's a thoroughly fascinating, interesting human being, thoughtful, well-read, widely experienced, and also knowledgeable about topics including science, and I've had many such discussions with him. Now, we decided not to do a retrospective of his films. It's been done before, of course, we discuss and he discusses the films in the context of what we're talking about, but we decided to focus on ideas. And our discussion ranged incredibly broadly over everything from norms and political correctness to the Catholic Church, to the nature of evil and the nature of nature itself. I think you'll find his ideas provocative and fascinating, and the stories of his own experiences truly remarkable. Werner's often been called the most misunderstood man in the world, and, and I think you'll see the man you see here may be very different than the man you've heard about, in particular, very different from the villain he played in Jack Reacher. So, with no further ado, Werner Herzog. Werner, thank you so much for letting us invade your solitude. I'm happy to say for those people who are watching that Werner and I are both va fully vaccinated and we feel comfortable being this far apart without our masks. So you don't have to write in. Um, Good to be together with you, <laughs> the two villains yes. in movies. That's right. You were my wonderful villain in uh, Salted Fire. One of the highlights. And I have of... played the parts of villains in some movies. So. Yes, we'll get in that. So we are good. You're, you, I, a you're good a better villain. But yeah, yeah. You're, you're definitely a better villain. But, but uh, um, I promised you when I said we talked that this is not going to be a retrospective of your mm -hmm. career. Th th those things have existed, and there's some good books that, uh, that, that, that uh, by uh, Paul Cronin that talked to you a, a lot about. I'm actually honored to have written the afterword in one of them. Um, but I do, but this, since it's an origins podcast, I, I, we have to begin with origins. So we have to yeah. go a little bit with the origins. And I want to read, I want to read two things. Um, first from the back of, of your book about to make the making of Kitz Corraldo, the conquest, uh, of the useless. It says that you grew up in a remote mountain village in Bavaria. You never saw any films, television, or telephones as a child, which is, which I want to get to. Then let me read the beginning of the, the first version of Cronin's book, which says, most of what you've heard about Werner Herzog is untrue. More than any other director, living or dead, the number of false rumors and downright lies disseminated about the man and his films is truly astonishing. In researching Herzog's life and work, a process that involved trawling through endless sources, it soon became clear how frequently some would contradict others. I confess to having deviously longed to trip him up, to find holes in his arguments, uncover a mass of contradictory statements, but to no avail. And I now conclude that he is either a master liar or more probably he's been telling the truth. And um, so the truth is you never saw any movies or television when you were a child. Is that right? 
Sure, but uh, you have to imagine the situation when I was born, uh, Munich was bombed. It was one of the early bombing raids. And um, the place where I uh, stayed, uh, my mother just had come back from hospital and brought me home. I was only two weeks old. And um, in the neighborhood, there was heavy damage. And where we lived, it was in an attic on a... Not a penthouse, but an atelier mm -hmm. with lots of glass. Uh, and uh, it was shattered. And she found me in my cradle, only two weeks old, with a layer of glass shards and brick and debris. Debris on me. Oh, wow. But I was completely unhurt. <laughs> so, but, but she was frightened and fled to the remotest place in the mountains, a safe place. And I grew up uh, next to a farmhouse in a small appendix, a small adjoining house, which was meant for the old farmers when they retire, they move out of the main farmhouse, but still help the young farmer who has inherited Uh, the farm now. And of course, we barely had electricity. We had no running water. We had no sewage. We had no heating system. Only in the kitchen there was a stove, uh, which created also warmth. But in the bedroom, in the tiny bedroom, there was no heating. And we had no toilet. Uh, we had no running water. Uh, well, a toilet, yes, but an outhouse. An outhouse. Okay. Uh, but it was um, made of um, wooden planks. And in winter, when it was very windy, little snow drifts came in, and it uh, it wasn't easy. <laughs> so, and uh, we had to take water from the well into the house. So, no sewage system, nothing. So. Of course, there was no radio, there nothing. was nothing and no uh, cinema. I only learned about it when I was, um, I think, 11 years, 10 or 11 years old. A traveling projectionist came to the schoolhouse and uh, showed two films, which didn't impress me at all. Um, but, uh, of course, I became, I, I took notice there was something out there that was unknown to me. Is, is that what intrigued you? Because what interests me is that, by the statement that you hadn't seen it, is when you were 16, you took an all-night job as a welder, working all night long and then going to school, or sleeping through school, I think you said, largely because you were working all night long, in order to finance your first film, right? Yeah. So what? why, with a childhood that had never really experienced that except at school, What was it about making a movie that made it, uh, that made it, that drove you? Well, it's a complicated uh, story, but uh, too complex for a quick exchange of opinions. Mm. But I can summarize it. I give you the, the shorthand of it. Uh, when I was 14, uh, of course, uh, we had to return to Munich when I was 11, 12, because there was high school and mm. there was electricity and there were, <laughs> um, radios and you, you just name it also cinemas. But for the high school, which we called Gymnasium, uh, which was with classical bias, we had to mm. learn nine years Latin, six years ancient Greek, a little bit English at the end. Uh, and uh, in Munich, of course, uh, there, there were some very uh, decisive moments, all crammed in a few weeks. And it was one of the events was I had... Uh, dramatic religious phase uh, and converted to become a Catholic of all huh. uh, religions. 
uh, I started traveling on foot and I knew I was a poet and I knew I was, uh, it was my destiny to make films. So that's all in very few um, weeks crammed. Sure. But what of it, course, it still has guided, it still is guiding me until today. Sure, it's clear. I mean, all of those things, having known you, are logical, are logical in retrospect. This epiphany, if you want to call it that, what age was it? Fourteen. Uh, Fourteen. Yeah. Wow. But uh, you see, uh, becoming a Catholic, I knew at the time it was uh, a difficult decision because I had pro problems with uh, church history, that the church was always on the side of the oppressed. Uh, I had uh, problems with the church hierarchy. For example, in Islam, uh, you don't have a hierarchy of clerics, and so you, you are um, facing God on your own. You say your prayers five times a day and you have no, you don't need a church, you don't need clerics. You're exposed all alone with your soul to, to the Almighty, uh, which doesn't exist in Catholicism. Yeah, it doesn't. In, I mean, I was brought up Jewish and I think it does a little bit in Judaism, although I don't think God listens to you unless you have a certain number of men with you. Yes, and it's also interesting that Jewish people talk back to to, to the Lord. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> They argue. They argue exactly. And I, I find this a very a very interesting, very interesting attitude. I I thought about that as well, but I had uh, problems about dogmas, and mm -hmm. and it goes back all the way to. Um, Uh, Bishop Arius, uh, I think in Alexandria in the fourth century, who um, tried to define the nature of God and what is the very substance of God, that it's a unique, a unique existence that exists per se and out, out of itself and is not connected to time. So God is outside of time because He, she, or it creates time. Now the problem is, what about Jesus Christ who was born his son? Wasn't his born ton, uh, born within time? Mm -hmm. So, and Arius argued that way, but he was declared a heretic at the Council of Nicaea mm -hmm. in 336 or so. And it's very interesting because I, I would like to have been on the side of the heretics. <laughs> of course you <laughs> And then a good hundred years later, Council of Ephesus, uh, the uh, St. Augustine. Uh -huh. uh, and it, at that time, it was uh, the, the argument about uh, free will. And there was... Again, a bishop, I think, uh, probably also um, in Alexandria, in Egypt, who argued that um, uh, we as human beings have an inborn free will. And therefore, we have the choice to sin or stay virtuous. For St. Augustine, impossible, because for him, there was an indelible mark upon the human soul. Sure. And that was being sinful. And only with the assistance of God or Jesus, we could be redeemed. So redemption does not come from us by avoiding sinful lives, but it only could come from from the Almighty. Yeah, well, And again, again, I think today or at that time I had the feeling uh, St. Augustine should be the heretic 
and not Pelagius. It would have been better for the world, I think, if St. Augustine had been the heretic, I think. But, but and and the, the discourse, the debate comes up until to this very day when the uh, uh, capital in Washington was stormed. One of the younger senators from, I think, Mississippi, uh, what is his name, uh, who is one of these firebrand, who, who showed the fist in front of the Capitol building to the oh, ones wow. who were about to. And the interesting thing is he has a theological argument and it is against St. Pelagius. He quotes Pelagius, a 4th, 5th century uh, um, theological thinker huh. as somebody who who is in favor of the very hardcore theological uh, sort of, of dogma of of free will or or will that is imposed uh, on us through our birth through our very nature well, yeah, I mean, you're right, so that all changed. of a sudden all of a sudden with the fundamentalists with the fundamentalists christian fundamentalists argue about this today sure and i find it interesting yeah it's fascinating and, because and uh, this this debate uh, uh, it's going to go on for the next centuries. It's not It's not anything eccentric that it comes up uh, today. Yeah, in fact, actually, I think it's probably that same aspect of St. Augustine. I first heard this quote from Christopher Hitchens, but I've since learned it was a 16th century bishop who said it. But the problem that, that, he, that Christopher saw with Christianity is that you were born ill and commanded to be well. And that seems like that seems uh, yeah. that seems unfair. And, and Saint uh, Augustine says, uh, "Non peccare, non possum." Not to sin is impossible for me, because sin is a blemish, is an indelible mark upon your soul and his soul, yes. and everyone's soul. So a very very fascinating argument. But to make it short, at that time I thought about these things, and I still chose to become a Catholic. Well, the fact that you thought about those things at age 14 is itself uh, is in, unique, I would say. For, well, you have to think about uh, uh, about the nature of God. Yeah, sure. But and the nature people, of creation, you have to get into it. Well, you, ha you I agree, one, one, you have to. I think most people, most people don't. And um, in fact, there was another, another quote that just came to mind because I was writing it from... from um, Bertrand Russell, who said most people would rather would sooner die than think, and they do, <laughs> which is uh, which is an attitude which is okay. We have the capacity, so does the cow in the field. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that's what the, thinking about the nature of these deep questions is. Yeah, I think what makes life worth living. In my and I think we agree on that. Yeah. I want to jump. Before we leave film entirely, we'll come back periodically. You were nice enough to, to let me ask me to speak at your rogue film school, and we, we had a fun yeah. discussion, as I remember, about the fourth dimension. But I was yeah. I was shocked. But at the time, you you talked about the num the most important things that for a filmmaker, and the two things that you that I remember you said were first reading, yeah. that reading is the most important thing. The second, as I remember, was learning how to pick locks. So maybe. Yeah, well, pick locks is only a separate, uh, isolated item, and by that I mean live, uh, live an intensive life. 
the way like Hemingway would live through things and then write about it. Or Joseph Conrad, mm -hmm. who has been um, captain of ships in uh, Southeast Asia and in the Congo, and so and and he he's somebody who's experienced what what he writes about in a way and has developed great prose, both of them. And I I just named them among many others mm. who are the ones who would actually. Uh, pick the lock uh -huh. or um, do other things. I propose, for example, learn how to forge documents, learn how to write a convincing um, letter or document that of permit allowing you shooting in. And for example, 10, 12 years ago, I filmed in Myanmar at that time, military dictatorship And, once and again, now yeah. dictatorship again. And <laughs> yeah. I had a wonderful, a wonderful document in the script of Myanmar and allowing me to film and I did. And so you you have to, so you have to do it. I would never have gotten the, the permit, nor would I ever have gotten the permit for shooting uh, in Peru when I moved my ship. Yes. And I had to move over a mountain, but I was not allowed because What we did not know, there was an impending, uh, not civil war, border war with Ecuador. And passage on the river that was near the border was not allowed. They even shot at our ship once. Oh, really? And, uh, and so I came back uh, with a shooting permit that was even signed by the Peruvian president. Perfect. Wow. El Presidente de la República. And stamps on it, wild stamps, invented right. stamps. And they never got back? You never had No, I showed it to the coronel who yes. was at a military camp and had somehow stopped my ship. And I showed it to him and, and he said, move on and salute it. Oh, wonderful. You, you didn't have to forge any documents for North Korea, I assume, to... You shouldn't do that. Yeah, uh, that would be no with North Korea. There's no joking and, uh, and you can't do it. And by the way, uh, I respect it. I completely respect it. What they asked me to do. I was there for filming a volcano, which yes. is a gigantic volcano at the border, mm -hmm. right at the border with uh, China. Half the volcanic lake in the rim is Chinese. The other southern part is belongs to North Korea. High military presence. And we were only allowed to do filming related to the volcano. And at one instance, very interesting, we filmed at the rim of the volcano with a scientist and about 10 yards away from us, there were soldiers. Everybody in North Korea should at least once visit the volcano because it's meant the spiritual origin of the Korean spirit and of Korean nation. So soldiers are ferried there and, and experience uh, uh, the wonder of this uh, place of origin. And I hear some laughter right next to me. And I, I see there are some young soldiers taking photos. We swung the camera around and there were five or six young soldiers and a young female soldier. And, and they did selfies and took photos of them in front of the volcano. And one of the soldiers had tickled one of the girls. Oh. So, and she was laughing and they were enjoying. And all of a sudden, one of our... Secret Service yeah. guys was 
bang in front of the camera, demanded switch it off. And now we were forced to delete it. And they said, I, I tried to argue and I said, this gives such a human face to the armed forces in your country. Yeah. No, uh, in no country in the world you can show uh, an ar soldiers with their face recognizable. You can identify them. Uh -huh. And besides, a North Korean soldier is not giggling and laughing. He and she are determined to sacrifice their lives for, for the fatherland. So, and we tried to delete it and we couldn't. We, it was complicated um, data management. And then after three days, they wanted to confiscate the entire hard drive. And they said, please don't do that um, because we are losing three, four days of shooting. Mm -hmm. And I said, I have a proposal. I would like to give you a guarantee Uh, that I'm not going to use this footage. And I'm really, and I said, I function like that. Many of my uh, uh, contracts, the most important were not in 120 pages contracts, but handshakes, uh, an oral sort of commitment. And they always functioned. And they said, what, what does your um, guarantee look like? And I said, I have three guarantees, my face, my honor, and my handshake. And I shook my hand and I was allowed to keep it. Wow. And I never used this footage. They said, ah, when you are outside of our airspace, you immediately mm -hmm. are going to mm -hmm. use it yeah. and it's showing up on CNN mm -hmm. and it's going to show up on Fox News. And it's, uh, <laughs> so I said, no, it will not. I do not function like that. Yes. That, uh, and you see, that's, that's my general attitude and it has always functioned. Yes. Even with the North Koreans. I maintain the honor in my face, in my commitment. And it, 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 that, again, knowing you as I do, that does not surprise me. But it, it's one of the things that makes you unique, unique in Hollywood, I think, especially. I, I, I read somewhere that at one point, um, uh, I forget which film, you, you said Hollywood was coming to you where they wanted to make something and you made them come to Munich. And, and, they, and they said... Uh, What, how much will it cost? Because you were writing the screenplay. Yeah. And you said, I think it's a dollar fifty for a hundred sheets of paper and maybe yeah, an extra dollar for a pencil. <laughs> no, it was true. Actually, it was at that time, um, uh, 20th Century Fox uh, that uh, was interested in my films. Because at that time, all of a sudden, three of my films on the American uh, theater market were among the 50 best selling films. And uh, they wanted to uh, produce three films with me. Uh, among them, there was uh, Fitzcarraldo, mm -hmm. but then it turned out very quickly. Actually, we did one film together, Nosferatu, the vampire film. Yes. Uh, but they were not producers. They, were, uh, they paid an advance guarantee, a distribution advance guarantee. And... Um, And they were surprised because I took them to the countryside to a very nice old-fashioned Bavarian restaurant and they said, uh, could you start working very soon on the screenplay? I said, yeah, I can do it uh, very quickly. And they, di they didn't understand that I could do it in a week or so yeah. because I saw the entire film. Then I write a screenplay and it takes me a week. Yeah, in fact, generally that's true, right? I yes, think when yeah, the sure. film we made, I think you said you made wrote yeah. a weekend or something. Yeah, Aguirre was yeah. written on a long weekend, two and a half, three days. But um, 
And and I wanted to know, yeah, how how would it be financed? And I was surprised. And how much would it cost? I said a dollar fifty. I have to buy two hundred fifty sheets of of paper. And at that time, of course, typewriters. And then I may uh, mess up a few pages, and I have to repeat some. So a dollar fifty. And they thought I was pulling their leg. <laughs> yeah, they must have. They must have. Well, but now let's get back. So. I think the point you were making, which we, we just digress from, is that filmmakers have, like writers, have to have experience. If they haven't had any life experience, it's hard to make films that 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 have meaning or depth. Is that? I mean, is that basically what you were trying to get? No, not necessarily. It, it it's my way to make films or write write texts. There are filmmakers uh, who haven't had that much experience in the world outside. For example, Fellini. Mm -hmm. I think he never left Rome for a shooting film and he came, uh, was born and raised in Rimini, which is only two, two hours car drive away. <laughs> yeah. Um, or for example, when you look at writers Marcel Proust, who spent his lifetime in bed <laughs> dictating to us, to, to, a, to a housekeeper. Sure. Um, and it's all his memories and uh, bringing his memories to life and digging into the flu fluctuations and the heartache of, of memories. So, uh, no, not necessarily. But, but, well, let's get to the second aspect, which, which I think is yeah. even more interesting. The fact that you, the first thing you said you have to do to, if you're going to make films is read. And I know during the time I've known you, you've introduced me to books that I'd never heard of that have, that have changed the way I've thought of the world. So I assume you stand by that, that reading yes. is an essential part of... Still. Of, yeah, of, for, for, or any creative work, uh, if you're an architect, if you're uh, uh, an artist, a visual artist, or if you're a writer, it's a filmmaker in particular, and uh, it gives you a sense of, uh, of concepts. It gives you a sense of storytelling. It gives you a sense of dialogue. It gives you a, a, a separate interior life Uh, that you can experience it is purely out in the abstract and yet it is full of life lives of others lives that were experienced by an author and expressed by someone so i think uh, reading is is essential and look at all the great filmmakers that i know today alive um You just name it Coppola, for example, has his own library, even his own librarian. Oh, really? uh, you have Terence Malick reading, 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 libraries full of, of books. Errol Morris, book after book uh, that he's reading. Um, everyone, if you look at the, at the real uh, greater of the filmmakers, Uh, just the other day uh, on this table was uh, Florian Henkel von Donnersmark, who did the lives of others. He reads, 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 even moves to Russia for two years, studies in Russia in order to be able to read the great novels Tolstoy, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky in its original <laughs> Russian. Wow. Yeah, man, I thought that's, that, that's, that's the way you, you, you've <laughs> got to do it. Yeah, that's dedication. It's, Every single one, every single one who is really good at it is reading. 
No, I, I mean, it's for both of us, I think, reading. I, I, it framed me. I, I, the, the time that I had, I guess the time I had in my life to read the most was up, up till about age 16 before other things began to get in the way. But the, but the fact that I spent almost my entire time just reading yeah. has served me the, for the rest of my life. And, right. And, and the, but, there, but there's reading and there's reading. There's people who, when we talk about reading, there's different levels of, of, of material. One of the things, having... Having been involved a little bit in movies, my view of 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 film critics and people who write about film is a little jaded. And I, I, I when you were talking, there's a quote of yours when you're oh, talking that, about that time Lu- is that time is over. Film critics, but anyway, well, please go when, ahead. when you were talking about Bad Lieutenant, you you, you you there's a great quote. You said, "I call upon the pedantic theoreticians of cinema to chase after such things. Go for it, losers." Yes. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes I'm provocative. I know I shouldn't be so outspoken. Oh, of course you should. But but uh, let's face it, the time of great uh, reviewers, uh, and that is Pauline Kyle or uh, at the New Yorker or uh, Roger Ebert. Mm. Um, you just named. Yeah. There were there were very good ones and mm-hmm. important because the audience uh, was on the lookout. What do they say about a film? But this culture has disappeared, uh, and they have been replaced bit by bit by bit, um, and uh, removed from the print media and replaced by c- celebrity news. Yeah, today it's all. All has shifted into celebrity news, and it has shifted to the internet. So, and for example, I remember the good old days in the 70s, for example, at primetime television, you had Gore Vidal and Norman Mailer at primetime discussing and wildly uh, fighting each other over the shape of the the modern uh, American novel. Prime time, yeah, it's all gone. You never have. And that. when you look uh, at universities, even at departments of classic, classics where they in humanities, the students do not read anymore. Yeah, in fact, not only they're not reading. I want to get to it. They they determine they they determine advance what they don't want to read, which is even worse because they don't know what they should be reading or or should be reading, no, and they decide. I don't advance. know what I should be reading either. Yeah. So, but I follow my curiosity. Of course, and exactly, but the, but you follow it in a positive sense, not in a sense saying I refuse to even think about reading yeah. that, which is unfortunately, as we'll get to, is a characteristic of a lot of what's going yeah. on in. In, in academia now. Yeah, and, uh, and of course, sometimes I'm I'm uh, provocative on purpose because I remember Bad Lieutenant. You saw it all over the place in the reviews, a remake of a film yeah. that was made by Abel Ferrara, mm-hmm. also Bad Lieutenant, yeah. but mine is uh, uh, Port of Call New Orleans. I mm, wanted, yeah. desperately wanted only part of Call New Orleans. It only has a title in common. It's completely and utterly different stories. And this kind of insipid uh, insisting on this was a remake. Not a single thread of my story has to do with Abel Ferrara's film. And Abel himself believed, oh, we are stealing <laughs> his movie. And at the Cannes Film Festival, when it was announced as stupidly 
as it gets by the produ by one of the producers. We are doing a remake, yeah. oh. and it caught on, and you cannot delete it anymore. And Abel said, "We said, oh, Herzog and his people should rot in, should burn <laughs> and rot in hell." And I met Abel two years later, and we were only laughing and had a, had had such a good time. We we I think three hours. 80% of what was not discourse, but laughing together. Oh, that's, well, yeah. No, that, well, I wonder, I honestly wonder lately when I see film reviews, if they've actually seen the movie. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not being facetious. I, it has become very popular on, uh, on the internet now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, 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 And it's one of my best films. It's a, it's an, it's an, we'll come back to it because I think it's an interesting reflection also on a number of things, including society and government. But I, before I, I, I do want to ask you what there's a the, the opening quote from from the book about Fitzgeraldo, which I think uh, you know this, but I, I, I've told you this. That the, I mean, mm -hmm. what, Fitzgeraldo is what I, I saw. Uh, I saw Aguirre, the Wrath of God, and, and Fitzgeraldo when I was a graduate student in Boston, yeah. and um, and it's what made me so, so dismayed the first time I met you, because. I thought you were so much older. You must be so much older than me. And I remember the first time we met, I thought I was a graduate student doing virtually nothing and you were picking I a was ship. Your age, I think I was your age when I did Aguirre. I think I was just in my late 20s. Yeah, exactly. It made me and feel, Fitzgeraldo in my late 30s. Yeah, it made me feel useless. But but you at the beginning of that book, you, you, you the first words you write is, a vision had seized hold of me like the demented fury of a hound that has sunk its teeth into the leg of a deer carcass and is shaking and tugging at the downed game so frantically that the hunter gives up trying to calm him. This gave me a sense that there's some things you... Uh, uh, the sense I have is that some... that you have to do some things. Some movies yes. just have to be made. You don't have... you can't not make them. Is that, the, is that true? Yeah, it's, it, there is a demented fury <laughs> and there's, I, I have a, a, maybe a better word that's not so loaded with uh, obsession or so because I'm not obsessive. Yeah, yeah, you know. No, there's a vehemence. Mm -hmm. There's a vehemence with which projects are coming at me. Well, why, you know, I, I, I always assumed and having I've now been involved in two movies of yours, but 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 one which was in Bolivia, that salt and fire, salt yes. and fire, exactly, and um, which, as I told you, is one of the anyway is a, for me a high, highlight of my life. Um, but I've always kind of felt like you didn't want to make a movie unless it was hard. No, and, no, and, no, and that's wrong, not true. Wrong, wrong, exact wrong. wrong. And there's a wonderful yeah. Uh, yeah I, well, let's let me give give you the quote, and then you can elaborate on that though. Uh, well, first of all, you say, I don't believe in fate and destiny, but I have a great faith in probability. I make sure that whatever I do puts me firmly on the side of safeties. safety. Perhaps mountaineers are motivated to seek out the most difficult routes, but not me. As a filmmaker, such an attitude would be wholly unprofessional and irresponsible, and being my own producer means it's especially in my interest to work as efficiently as possible. Sure. So this notion that you, that I think probably because of Fitzcarraldo or maybe the others, that, that the movie has to be almost impossible to make is not what drives you. Uh, almost impossible, but doable. The doable. I do the doable. 
I do the doable and I keep telling everyone, do the doable. And you remember Salt and Fire. Mm -hmm. We had a scene where we thought we would uh, dig the camera very, very yeah. low and even through into the salt, a salt plane, miles and miles yeah. and miles, very strange and beautiful and extraterrestrial. And we tried to dig the camera into the salt and it was hard. It was, the salt was, was hard like concrete. Yeah. And and we had only a fortnight of shooting the entire feature film. And the cinematographer, Peter Zeitlinger, said, oh, come on, let's spend more time and so. But I said, Peter, look at the sun. Here it is. And it will be down in two and a half hours There's no more shooting. And we have still three sequences left I do to remember. film. And I said, drop drop your ice axe and try, do not try this. We have to do the doable. And you were right there. Yeah, I remember. And that. you remember it. Yeah. Oh yeah, we were we were because some of us were leaving the next day, in fact. Yeah, yeah. We, that was the last I remember that. And I remember You're saying, let's just do it, forget continuity in one scene. Yes. Continuity doesn't matter, it's just important you, to get it done. Yes, and continuity is, is something which is some sort of a, the sacred cow of the, um, let's say, the film industry. And um, for me, sometimes in films where you cannot predict everything, like Akiri, the wrath of God, what is going to happen to you in the rapids, in sure. three rafts sure. passing through rapids, you just collect footage and you try to get through the whole thing. So, and I keep saying, if footage has great substance, it always fits together. It always connects. And it's a truth that I have learned through many, many, many of my films. This episode of the Origins Podcast is brought to you by NordVPN. A VPN or virtual private network ensures an additional layer of internet protection by encrypting data sent from your device to your provider. This means whether you're home or anywhere in the world, you can be confident that your data won't be intercepted along the way, which can allow you to unlock services like Netflix, for example, which can be restricted by geographic location while abroad. I should know, I'm a NordVPN user myself. If you're tired of your internet service provider throttling your bandwidth when you're gaming or streaming, Nord encrypts all your traffic, so throttling is a thing of the past. And NordVPN also offers a 30-day unlimited money-back guarantee, and it's compatible with all major devices, including Windows, Mac OS, Linux, iOS, and Android. Whatever your VPN needs, NordVPN has you covered. Go to nordvpn.com slash originspodcast or use coupon code ORIGINSPODCAST to get a two-year plan plus one additional month with a huge discount. That's nordvpn.com, promo code ORIGINSPODCAST. This great deal won't last long, so act now. It has to be worth making. I guess there's another quote on that same page yeah. that, I, that, again, struck me, and I'm going to read it because I love it. Uh, if you give a piece of an unknown metal alloy to a chemist, he will examine its structure by putting it under great pressure and exposing it to great heat. This gives him a better understanding of what the metal is composed of. The same can be said of human beings who often give insight into their inmost being when under duress. We are defined in battle. The Greeks had a saying, a captain only shows during a storm. Shooting under a certain amount of pressure and insecurity injects real life and vibrancy that wouldn't otherwise be there into a film. 
but I wouldn't be sitting here if I had ever risked anyone's life while making a film. I'm a professional who never looks for difficulties. My hope is always to avoid problems. So, so, but that doesn't mean you don't avoid the difficult. There's a difference between avoiding problems and avoiding the difficult, sure. I guess. And difficulties have to be faced and you have to outsmart uh, the, uh, the obstacles that are thrown into your way. Uh, and still you have to be professional in, enough to outsmart the reality on the ground that is against fundamentally against your filmmaking. In fact, I, there's another quote somewhere. I, I don't want to dig it up. I know it's somewhere. Something about... Um, you said I th something about perseverance, something like perseverance is the heart of a... No, uh, no, there's a, a Peruvian, I know it from Peru, la perseverancia es donde los dioses, it's perseverance is where the gods dwell. <laughs> Perfect. And that's a very nice way to, to say it. And you're co correct, uh, Lawrence, in 70 or so films, uh, 70 plus films, not a single actor ever got injured, not one. That's Not remarkable. one. That's remarkable. Not a single one. However, I was injured. Some crew members were injured. Mm -hmm. I remember um, Fitzcarraldo, uh, the cinematographer, Thomas Mauch, he had a handheld camera, but at that time, celluloid 35 millimeter, uh, and it was 20 kilos heavy, huge piece yes. of iron. And we re we banged into a rock when it uh, goes, the ship goes through yeah, the rapids. Sure. And the impact, we had several impacts, but that one was so ferocious that the lens shot away from <laughs> out of the camera and we flew after it. I tried to hold mm -hmm. him and he landed <laughs> some 30 yards further down with his hands on the deck huh. with a camera in his hand and it split his hand apart oh. between the last and the ring finger all the way to the center of the hand, and we had to operate him and stitch him together. Did you have a doctor on site at the time? We had a doctor, and we had a very, very good uh, Peruvian paramedic who was very good in stitching, by by the way, and very good in as a midwife. Oh. He was very always in childbirth there, and he was the real best. A uh, dislocated shoulder, he would massage back in. He was really good. And at the time, we didn't have any anesthesia left because only two days before we had an incident where people who were fishing, local people, mm -hmm. native people who were fishing for us further upriver were attacked by a semi-nomadic tribe that was not contacted by civilization. And they were very hostile. And we had the driest dry season in recorded history, in the river further up, 10 days further up, dried out. Oh, my goodness. And they moved along with a dwindling water, probably in search of, of uh, turtle uh, eggs. And at night, they attacked our three people. And one man was uh, shot through the throat with an arrow. If you reach out right next to you, there are some arrows. Reach a few. Oh, yes. Give, give me a few. A few? Yeah, there's. I'll give you one Actually, at a time. You see, there, there, are, some, there are something like... Uh, They're beautiful. Six feet, yeah. six feet tall. Wow. And Oops. actually... I don't want to stab. There's still... You still can feel... Are these from that, that, that? No, from a different tribe, uh, from a different movie. Inside here, they are still poisoned, but it's uh, it's not like curare yeah. that would kill you. It's an anticoagulant. Ah. So if you shoot a top here, 
it uh, the bleeding would With, not stop yeah. easily. But it's mostly that that long because they keep uh, straight when they enter water, uh-huh. so they do not wobble, and you can shoot fish. And it was exactly the same type of of arrows, and he was shot through. It split open his shoulder, stuck through his neck. And was uh, with a with a arrow tip uh, had stuck was stuck in the other shoulder, but the arrow was still through his throat, and the uh, arrow itself, the shaft, had broken off, and he survived. He survived. We, we operated on the kitchen table. Wow! Because we couldn't transport them. Sure. the woman yeah. was also had three shots, one in the abdomen, one through the body here. Well, they were very lucky. Above the, we're filming nearby. They would have been. Yeah, sure, and and we had medical people, but we knew we couldn't transport them anymore. There was no way they would die on, yeah, during you, transport. You, yeah, sure. Yeah. So we instantly started to operate on them. Did someone and also get bitten by a snake in that? In that? Yeah, in that he sawed off his foot in order to survive. Yeah, but but those are the the things that may happen. But here with these arrows, it was really. Uh, an unusual experience for making a movie. Yes, yeah. And I assisted <laughs> yeah. with a torchlight uh, illuminating, oh. uh, for example, the abdominal cavity of the woman who was, because one arrow was stuck, in, stuck inside the pelvis. And none of them well, died? They saw two, two of them. They both survived. Wow. And with, a, with my other hand, with a mosquito repellent, <laughs> I sprayed away the, the clouds of mosquitoes. <laughs> That were attracted okay, okay. by the, and it was on the kitchen table. Oh, jeez. Okay. Well, there you go. That's doable, but not, but difficult. Yeah, and but unusual. Doable. Those those things. Yeah, but they, they do happen, and and you see some of it actually. It's not made up. You you have to watch uh, Les Blanc's film Burden of Dreams. Mm-hmm. You see the man who had the arrow okay. through yeah. through the neck, and um, of course. Uh, he can only speak in a whisper, and, well, but he survived. Yeah, yeah. But surviving, that's amazing. Well, you know, so, yeah, if it's worth doing, and, and, and if it's difficult, it's worth doing, I guess. But it's... it's uh, yes, but you do not expect uh, such an event. In a way, yes, uh, we, we were medically fairly well equipped, but you have to be prepared to to not uh, somehow get frightened and delegate the case to the next hospital uh, in, uh, mm-hmm. let's say, in, in Iquitos, which is 800 kilometers away. Sure, yeah. You just can't do it. You you have to take a decision uh, whether it's right or wrong. It it was right because they would have died. Right. And then, yeah, exactly. Well, that was the making of a, of a fiction movie, one of the things that's intrigued me, and it's the last sort of film, direct film-related question I have before I want to move yeah. to other things, is you move between documentaries and feature mm-hmm. uh, fiction dr- drama. And I don't know what governs the choice. Do you try and balance that, or is it just the mood at the time? Or, or uh, It's unusual, I think, for filmmakers to be so well-versed in the two different media. Yeah, but it, it makes... Uh... Uh, it makes reviewers nervous, uh, <laughs> and I, I think there's nothing wrong about it, and there's nothing wrong about it. I do not want to compare myself with him, but Shakespeare, why mm. is he writing uh, dramas and then he's writing uh, poetry? 
So what's wrong about that? Uh, I, I, there's nothing wrong about it, but yeah. it, but it it what I mean is there it, do you go through periods mentally or intellectually when you are more attuned to thinking in terms of documentaries, or is it just what happens? No, at the no, it's what whatever is coming at me with great vehemence. I'm, I have to deal with that first. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Okay, good. That's the. Uh, I want to move into a, a, a totally other area. Well, maybe not totally other area. Talking about writing and reading, you introduced me to a book which I'd never heard of, uh, The Peregrine, which yes. which I I was sitting in this living room and you showed it to me and I went out and got it, and it and it and there's a quote in that book which I actually yeah. began one of my later books with because it was so influential to me. The hardest thing of all to see. It is what is what is really there. That 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 quote from that book it seems to yeah. me to be epitomized so much about certainly my own science, but life in general. I w comment on that on that quote. Well, that's a very essential uh, way to uh, to review and understand and scrutinize and love the world. It's essential, you see, and when you when you look at, uh, for for example, political discourse, um, it's always preconditioned kind of discourses. It's almost like kabuki theater, uh, and you know exactly what's coming sure. from uh, from this channel or from that channel. So, and and it's almost like brainwashing, and and stay away from brainwashing. Just uh, take a good look what's out there. And, and besides, look at it with an intensity and look at it with, and that's the peregrine, look at it with his ultimate passion of what he's observing. In his case, a narrow world, peregrines. We, we just and follow yet, that. And, and yet uh, he has written, in my opinion, the best prose we have seen since Joseph Conrad. Yeah. It's, and... Uh, It's remarkable. Some of the deepest uh, insights into, not into, yeah, also human nature, but into passion and into observation and into nature that is completely unique. No, I, I, yeah, and again, it's something I never would have picked up. I would have thought, why would I read a book about someone who is following a peregrine falcon around for yeah. making his life? Yeah, and yeah. Part I bring of the book because it's... There it is. I have to show it because... Yeah, you have to show it. You've got to read it. And it's just a simp and simple book about... Uh, which is clearly heavily notated, I see, from your version. Yeah, well, yeah. I have <laughs> lots of... Yeah. Lots of, not so, annotations, but in, important... Someone basically who decided to become the peregrine in order to, yeah, in order yeah. to follow it. Yeah. And, uh, and and the text uh, becomes really intense, even some some almost incantatory, mm -hmm. like a re religious incantation. Yeah, it has, no, it has qualities of things that I always like to find in movies, to find in literature. So and and it's so intense that uh, Baker would uh, somehow morph into a peregrine himself. He describes yes. a peregrine soaring higher and higher until it's only a dot. And then we come swooping down. We. 
comes <laughs> swooping down as if he were a peregrine himself. Yeah, that's we it. come swooping down. You get the sense that that's and what uh, he had to become. He had to yeah. become a peregrine in order to follow. And, and what I also like is it's absolutely no Disneyization of nature. Yes, it's stark and and. Uh, uh, and ferocious and uh, well, yes, relentless, relentless, relentless. Before we leave the peregrine, though, I mean this this notion of of, of seeing what's really there, not what's appearing. Yeah, I, and I hate to almost the question almost makes me sound a little too literary, and I don't really mean it. But I mean, it, does that guide what what you're doing in films too? I mean, I hate no, to, it sounds not, like a film question, and I hate it, to ask it a, that way. A little bit, but but all of a sudden, I discover someone who who. Uh, uh, reverberates uh, in life and in um, exploring the world on a wavelength that is, has been mine since my childhood. And then, so it's uh, the and, and uh, there's somebody who has this incredible intensity and incred- incredible gift of speech. Um, so I, I really admire him and I. Keep telling everyone, uh, if you want to be a filmmaker, start with that book. I remember it. It has nothing to do with filmmaking. Yeah, absolutely nothing. And And I think maybe it was even the film school that I first heard about it. I can't remember, but I picked it up after that. Yeah. And uh, and it is profound. And um, something that occurred to me... When when well, I think I first it first occurred to me when I first saw Grizzly Man, yeah. which is when we first met. Just to be to be yeah. clear, we first, I was happened to be a judge at the Sundance Film Festival at the time, yeah. and and that's and that's how we and we gave you a you prize. You slept a prize, <laughs> <in me. laughs> yes, unbeknownst to each other. Yeah. Yes, and um, but what always what there were so many things about that movie that were impressed me, but but the interesting thing which I've seen in a number of which I've now looked for, I think, in, in subsequent documentaries, is you keep the camera on a person longer than the end of the interview. And, and in a sense, after the interview's over, in, sometimes you see what's really there. I don't, I don't, maybe, maybe I'm reading too much into it, but maybe you could talk about that a little bit. Uh, well, I'm not shooting, uh, keeping the cameras mm-hmm. rolling all the time. Mm-hmm. We are not garbage collectors, yeah, yeah, and you sure. can sh- collect hundreds of hours. But sometimes when I have a conversation on camera, and when the statement of my uh, part, uh, partner in dialogue is over, I normally keep the camera rolling because very often there's, after a pause, there's an afterthought. And very, very often the afterthought gives a real insight. So I'm hoping and waiting for an afterthought. That's what I'm thinking of, sort of what's really there, is you, you yes. get the talk and then you get the afterthought, which is sort of what's really Sometimes, there. Sometimes, but uh, uh, it's, it's just a way I use a camera and uh, try to get something that is unexpected for both in dialogue. Speaking of unexpected... One of the things that 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 I want to talk about is defying norms, which is increasingly difficult in the modern world. But nevertheless, uh, I want to I want to ex- explore it in a variety of levels of depth because it seems to me, I mean, besides as an individual defying norms, which yeah. it, which it is fair to say you do, you're attracted to that. If I think about it, if I look at your films and the the characters, both in in 
in in the documentaries and in the non-documentaries, I mean, from Fitzcarraldo mm-hmm. and Gear to Dwarfs to Rescue Dawn and Little Dieter, um, uh, the Grizzly Man, and even in Salt and Fire, mm-hmm. the characters are traditionally, or the real people, are people who defy norms. And, yeah. and, and, and it seems to me you're increasingly attracted to that, which I find not only enlightening, but refreshing in a world where where it's becoming virtually impossible to defy a norm without being cancelled. Well, you can defy norms, but but we shouldn't we shouldn't overlook that there's uh, something in the background of all. One is uh, the side of truth. Let's not try to define it. Religion or philosophers or mathematicians cannot even tell you exactly what's what is truth. But on the other side, there's facts. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, much of cinema documentary is fact-oriented, like Cinema Verite or what you see on television every night. Uh, normally, um, a story that has to do with uh, with an issue, and and then there has to be redemption and closure and hope at the end. So there are certain norms, and I have not liked it. But uh, facts should cannot be overlooked because they have normative normative norm creating power mm-hmm. and uh, what i'm trying to say is uh, when you have a pandemic uh, which is a, a worldwide fact all of a sudden it creates norms of behavior you better wear a mask when you're not vaccinated yet you better keep uh, uh, six feet, uh, six, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, six, six feet, feet. Di- distance from from your neighbors. So uh, the the normative power, norm creating power, facts should not be overlooked. So I'm not totally against norms, but uh, when it comes to fantasies, when it comes to invented characters, when it comes to storytelling, when it comes to poetry, just go wild. <laughs> just go wild. <laughs> Create your own um, your own norms or your own borderlines and your own uh, fantastic constructs. That's that's the beauty of poetry. That's the beauty of writing. It's the beauty of filmmaking. It's and it's the freedom of poetry and filmmaking. I'm wondering sure. if that's why uh, one of the attractions is the fact that you can go wild. And there's very there are increasingly fewer areas yeah. in the world where you can go wild. But in some sense, with filmmaking and with writing, yeah, um, you can you can you can go where you want. Yeah, even even in nature, you hardly can go yeah, wild yeah, anymore. Yeah. Just try it, try try that in Yosemite yeah. National Park. You will have five park ranges <laughs> in hot pursuit if you leave the paved uh, walkway. Yeah, try that. Yeah. yeah, it's 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 just increasingly hard everywhere. And I, but this sense of independence. Um, there are two quotes early in this book um, about you by that that Cronin says. Um, yeah. It says, Herzog pays little attention to the chorus, and why should he? It is an antagonism he feels towards such folk as much as indifference. His ferocious need to make films and write books will forever trump everything, regardless of the obstacles. Um, and I, so I think the, 
the obstacles are important. We talked about that, but it's the freedom to approach whatever you yeah. want. I think that. Well, the obstacles are the natural concomitant of the metier in which yeah. I'm working, and everybody knows it, and and almost everybody complains. But I'm not in the culture of complaints. Well, we'll, we'll talk uh, about the I, culture I really, of complaints. No, I, I'm not into it. I, I don't like it. The making of the film is is irrelevant. It's what counts is what you see on the screen. So if I have suffered through it or not, who cares? It's it's irrelevant. Um, and whether it was difficult to work with Orson Welles is irrelevant, or with uh, like Kinski or, Kinski <laughs> or uh, Marlon Brando. Yeah. yeah. Marlon, the young Marlon Brando, the older Marlon Brando, uh, difficult. Yes, who cares? What what we care about are the films, and I'm not seeking uh, problems and difficulties. I, I don't I don't like that aspect of it. But, but he says one thing that surprised me a little bit, but um, I, I, because yeah. it surprised me because I can really relate to it, but I never thought of yeah. did you were relating. It says Werner feels no shame in admitting that the respect of those he respects somehow keeps him going or temporary lessens the burden. So yeah no 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 it's I think I'm trying to with all my films to some degree to look at our human condition what is our, what are we who are we right now and uh, and I'm not afraid to look very as deep as it gets and I'm uh, in the film that we did together, Salt and Fire. I have two blind boys yes. who are all of a sudden stranded with my protagonist, uh, a young woman in in a in a salt desert and abandoned there. How does she cope with it? How uh, all of a sudden comes something across through these two boys who are blind? Or, for example, I would look into. Um, the deep joy and the fantastic designs of a man like Fitzcarraldo, or I'm looking into the recesses of our, the darkest recesses of our human soul, doing eight films, nine films on death row. Yes. You see, and, and, and that, 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 that's serious business. I remember when you were doing them, I remember talking. It's it was very difficult to do and to be difficult, with but, but at the same time, you see, everybody expects from you to be like either the attorneys defending them. And, and I would tell them in writing before, um, my film is not a platform to prove your innocence. You have had 11 years and your support groups and your separate trial again and your, clemency appeals and all that so are you still prepared because i want to look deep into into who we are and what what the nature of these crimes were and in one case uh, the most nihilistic crime that i know a triple homicide two perpetrators and the, one of them the perpetrators was condemned to death his um, uh, his execution scheduled for eight eight days from the time I had him on camera. And I I tell him right away, within the first 120 seconds, and he looks like a very nice kid, mm -hmm. really a sweet young man. And I tell him, Mr. Perry, we know that it's highly probable that you will die in eight days. And looking at you and, and the crime that happened, it's not necessarily... Uh, happening that that I have to like you. I do not have, I do not necessarily have to like you. And still, 
I'm against capital punishment yeah. and I'm very open to listen to you. And when I say that, he hesitates a moment and he says, all right, because nobody has spoken like this to him ever. Ever. People yeah. have to make it seem as if they like him and want and, him. To... And he was actually executed eight days later. But sometimes, you see, it, it was uh, on Discovery Channel, the, the four films in yeah. them, they asked me to do four more and I had so many fascinating, incredible cases and they covered them and then they wanted four more. And at that time, uh, I had my last film was a film with a, a young, very young man, 19 years old in Texas. And it was a botched uh, exorcism. Oh. Wow. Wow. And a, and a toddler girl was uh, murdered in a way that is unspeakable. It It is beyond, beyond what you could imagine. And you, and um, I read the entire case file and with the homicide detectives, they showed me photos of the crime scene. And I told them the day before, delete the photos of the victim, delete it. I have seen the coroner's report, which is abstract. Mm -hmm. Do not show me the photos. They projected it against the wall. All of a sudden, the tenth photo is uh, is that little girl, and they quickly switched to mm -hmm. the next. Again, the victim. And what I saw, what I saw, not even my worst enemy should ever see in his or her life. I have seen something that uh, you should never see. And just at the time when um, they wanted me to do some more films. I woke up in the middle of the night because I heard a scream. And I woke up and I was wide awake and my wife next to me, she was scared and because it, the scream was my scream. I woke up from my own scream because I had seen... Because. And <clears throat> so... Uh, I decided within five seconds, I'm not going to continue shooting anything on death row. Although there was projects planned, you just, just don't do it. Yeah, yeah to, to, there's an economy with your own, with your own soul or with your own uh, perseverance or your own capacity to to absorb. So, um, uh, although uh, there's a vehemence there to do it. Um, I knew I had to stop because there was a brink. Yeah. Uh, For yourself. In a way, yes. But uh, so I'm not, I'm not doing everything. Yeah. Well, and okay. I've done nine films, and the film I'm referring to is, uh, I think, online. It's called Into the Abyss. Yes, Into the Abyss. It's, and it's one of my my very very intense films. I remember when you were in the process of make, making. Mm -hmm. But I, I noticed that doing it was affecting you. It, at least I, that I got the sense. It was very difficult emotionally to, to be able to, to... Well, as a filmmaker, you're not allowed to have emotions, so only to a certain degree. Yeah. So on my set, it's, uh, people would cry next to the camera, and I would, after the take is done, I would say, um, my set... Um, um, it's, it's a tear-free zone. It's yes. There's no, no cry-free. 
It's My also, set is cry-free. It's an emotion-free. I remember. I remember vividly when I made when we made Salt and Fire because, yeah. as you know, I like to joke around. Yeah, and it's just the way I am, and 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 we joke when we're together as friends. But when we were on the set. It was. Uh, I was planning to make some jokes, and I just did not. I didn't do it because I looked in your eyes, yeah. and it was clear that it was. There was no joking. There was no crying. There was. Yeah. It was just distracting from the intensity of work <laughs> because we had to squeeze a program of shooting in one day that other filmmakers couldn't even do in five. Yeah. So there was not not a breath free for, but I like I like when there's laughter on the set. I like when there's joy, and I like, uh, for example, not long ago I recorded a voice uh, for a guest role for The Simpsons. <laughs> the director was sitting not in the um, in the control room. Uh -huh. uh, soundproof behind glass uh, fronts. Yeah. He was sitting in my <laughs> next to me, and I I thought, oh yeah, I'll, I'll do it really yeah. wild. And before I had finished reading the text, he laughed, so he burst out <laughs> laughing. And from the control room, you can't laugh into his line. Just keep quiet. And I said to him, please keep quiet. And, and next time I did it even wilder, and he started to laugh even earlier. They had to, and I knew, I knew this was good now. Yes. Because even the man who has written the lines yes. sitting there and who knows everything bursts out in laughter. Well, you know, so it, it, I knew I was good. Well, yeah, you 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 are good. <laughs> but no, that in, reminds in me. But no, but you know, it's funny. I make, Lawrence. No, I no, make, I know what you mean. I, I make my mistakes, and I'm a, I'm a, I'm a result. I'm a child of my mistakes. Sure, but but the what, the reason I was going to what made me think about this is a very similar experience I had with you. There was a line that you wrote in Salted Fire. I, I think when 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 I've asked my name or something, and I have to go yes and no. Yes. And you kept telling me how to do it, and I was doing it one way or another. And then I remember I finally got it, and you broke down and started laughing. <laughs> and I said, I know I've gotten it right. Yes, sure, sure, yes. And and always when, when it comes to something, and I'm always right next to the camera. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with my face very close and there's something it doesn't have to be funny but if something is so extremely good like uh, some things with uh, Nicolas Cage I had to gag myself with a with a handkerchief <laughs> because I was I was getting purple in my face and I was not I was about bursting out laughing even with Kinski really wild serious scenes and and I was I would, when when the dialogue was over I would bend down and burst out laughing and they knew they were good now yes. don't repeat it from that moment on I always have something to gag okay. myself oh interesting I need I need to gag myself so you don't make the mistake of spoiling yeah, the scene because it would be in the sound it would sure be. sure Yeah. yeah, but I'd, yeah. Anyway, that's memorable for me that I, yeah, that I, that moment, that was a moment. That was the first time I was nervous about doing what I was doing. But when I made you laugh that time, yeah. I just thought, okay, well, it may, it may work. <laughs> you were good. <laughs> At least I yeah. can. Now let's switch completely. Um, I told you I'm going to jump over topics. Mm -hmm. There's a quote, and I know this. Uh, I, I will again f frame this. I I used to hate Los Angeles. You're the first person that made me see Los Angeles in a different way. And there's a quote in this book that, that, I, that I think captures it. You said, what I like about Los Angeles is it allows everyone to live his or her own lifestyle. 
Drive around the hills and you find a Moorish castle next to a Swiss chalet sitting beside a house shaped like a UFO. There's a lot of creative energy in Los Angeles not channeled into the film business. For me, Los Angeles is the city in America with the most substance, even if it's raw, uncouth, and sometimes quite bizarre. Yes, uh, well said. Well, well said, exactly. Well said, and, and, yes, and it's colored, colored my own picture of Los Angeles since then. But I want to use that as a hook to talk about something else, which is your the reason you like Los Angeles is, in my mind, correlated, I think, to a lack of political correctness. Namely, in Los Angeles, anything goes. No, and not, political, not anything. There's also political correctness, yeah. oh, but a little less than in some other areas. But um, I'm here in Los Angeles because I'm happily married here. I'm not here for <laughs> for Hollywood. And and of course, everybody, when I say uh, we moved to the city with the most substance in the United States, everybody thinks yeah, I'm making a joke because they think immediately about the glitz and glamour of Hollywood. Sure. No, it's uh, substance, creative substance. Scientists, uh, mathematicians, uh, even the reusable rockets are built within sure. the perimeter of the city itself, not outside somewhere in the countryside, here in the city. And uh, all the crazy sects, um, I mean the crazy things as well, crazy sects, uh, um, yoga classes for five-year-olds, <laughs> and you just name it. But... Um, I, I do believe that uh, maybe in, in the world it's a city at the moment, it's a city with the most substance, and things get done here. Things can get done if there's a variety, if there's sort of a thousand points of light, if different people, because most things fail. Mm -hmm. and, and only if you try lots of different things will, will some of them succeed. And that's certainly the way it is in science, and I think it's the way it is mm -hmm. in business and perhaps in film too. Yeah. But, but, I'm, I guess the reason I'm asking this is I want to frame this in the way in which society is moving towards a kind of level of uniformity, a kind of level of where, where you cannot strike out in different directions. And, I, and, and so mm -hmm. um, how do you see the future here in Los Angeles? Well, uniformity is not only a question of uh, Los Angeles, it's, uh, it's a worldwide sure. phenomenon because we are so many human beings on this planet and it enforces uh, some sort of uh, structured behavior and controlled behavior and controls today are so easy through the internet you can locate where you are and uh, uh, in China for example I do believe that you can um, find out that some person uh, is exactly at that moment at a, at a rally at a political opposition rally yes. and meeting some dissidents and you know and all of a sudden you are being punished you cannot open a, a bank account anymore or things like that. So you cannot have a credit card anymore. And um, this kind of normed, streamlined behavior will inevitably uh, take more root the more human beings we are. We are too many. And all the problems of ecology and uh, wasting away our resources on our planet um, 
be the result of, of, of this enormous amount of population. And the second massive, massive uh, uh, downside is most of the population on this planet is into the mood of consumerism. We are all moving in, in, and this is why I try to to live a life with as little cons consumerism as possible. I have one pair of shoes, for example. I don't need two or three. Actually, I have a second one for mountain climbing. <laughs> so it's not completely right. And I, I do not throw food away. 45% of food is being thrown away. And it pains me because as a child after the war, my brother and I and my mother, we were very hungry. We were really hungry for about one, two years. And I know what it means to be hungry. So, and, and this consumerism is uh, something, it's not the entire world. When, when you look at the Amish, for mm -hmm. example, they still live, mm -hmm. um, uh, life without technology or with very little technology, low impact technology, and they have homestead farms. And they have a very, very clear understanding how to behave as human beings. So in, in the long term, they have a long term better survival than we have. Well, that's what I was going to ask. Yeah. It's almost unfair to ask this, but are you optimistic or pessimistic about the direction, the, the the future, given the the forced uniformity, the increased population, the internet. Uh, um, uh, uh, of course, you made a movie the, about the ethereal aspects of the internet, <laughs> which I was going to talk about maybe later. But but uh, but but its influence on the social behavior of individuals. Uh, yes, it's inevitable and uh, uh, straightforward. Individualism uh, is is a more rare phenomenon. And yes, you can, uh, for example, go into back into homestead farming, uh, but then how do you feed... Uh, Uh, how do we feed 8 billion people, 8,000 million people? Yeah. And I remember on the set of Salt and Fire, we had these arguments with Peter Zeitlinger, who <laughs> lives a very green life. He has yeah. a little homestead at home in northern Italy. And he said, ah, oh, yeah, we should all build, we should all have uh, little um, farm plots on the roofs of skyscrapers. And I said, fine, try that with New York City. Yeah. Uh, yes, you can have beans and tomatoes up there, but how do you feed 11 mil or 8 million inhabitants of Manhattan Island? You have to go hunting and gathering, and for that you have Central Park. And you have 8 million people who do not know how to shoot a bow and arrow, and you have maybe 400 squirrels as prey. So show it to me. No, go that, out and show it to me. Exactly, the, the, the blissful... Uh, you know, romance of nature in that sense is is not realistic. And if we want, in fact, it it discourages some people to realize that. You know, I I told you I just wrote a book about climate change. That that um, the way to feed to potentially deal with this is not to go back to homestead farming, which takes more land. Yeah. But for better or worse, 
uh, large-scale farming and, and, and technology has yeah. allowed people to do more with less. And that sure, means- and we can do it. There's, there's lots of improvement, but the, the very basic problems remain, and it's uh, hard to tackle. One is overpopulation. China has tried it with a one-child policy, and it will have long-term term <laughs> effects in the next generation. Sure. Just wait for that. Uh, second is consumerism. And almost every single civilized society on this planet is wildly into consumerism. And that's where we can do a lot of changes. But it will lower our standard of living. It inevitably will lower the standard of living. Well, it will change it. It's an interesting question of low, when, when you say lower, it means you, you consume less, you, you spend, you, you have fewer things, but it's not yeah. necessarily, I, don't, I think possessions. lower is kind of a emotional yeah, way. Yeah, because uh, it's considered a high standard if you have a lot to, to waste and consume <laughs> yeah. and, and having uh, uh, 200 shirts in, in, our, yeah. in our closet. And so it's yes, we we can we can reduce it, but it will have severe consequences on economy. Yes, uh, we will have a reduced economy and uh, more unemployment. And uh, the it's not just an attitude that we can adopt easily. It will be painful. It's, it's, will it'll be, be painful. a challenging pain. Yes, as, yes, sure. Especially as yeah, as more yeah. people are not employed or not paid to do work. Yes, but, and let's face it here. We face it here, and that's why I find uh, ideas of colonizing the next planet, Mars with one million people, I don't like it. It's not right. We should stay and understand this is our own planet. This is our home. It is glorious. It is wonderful. It's miraculous. And it's friendly also, of course, hostile, but it's that's a, and such a blessing upon us. And uh, I keep saying about uh, uh, colonizing other planets, and the only one in our vicinity would be would be Mars. Um, one million people there. It's technically it's not doable. Uh, technically, it's, and and I say it without being a technician. The last century, the twentieth, saw uh, the demise of great social utopias, communism, uh, fascism, creating a master race of Aryans, <laughs> and all the devastation that came with it, and all the barbarism that came with it. Our century, the 21st, will inevitably see the demise and the collapse of technological utopias. For example, through genetic manipulations, we will not become immortal or quasi-immortal. It is not going to happen. Number two, we will not colonize Mars with one million people. It's an illusion. It's a utopia. Mind my word when we meet in 100 years. <laughs> I can't wait to have this discussion with you in 100 years. And Elon <laughs> Musk, mind my word, <laughs> when I meet you somewhere out there, <laughs> I want to have that discourse with well, everyone. As a, as, a tech, as, more, as a technician, I suppose I'm not quite a technician, I'm a theorist, but I can't agree with you more. This, this illusion that we're going to colonize Mars is is an illusion and it's yes and I, but we should we should explore it yeah that's different yes, send robots and send scientists up there i prefer and the I robots always, but 
robots are easier to handle and yeah. they probably have more more value than a human being mm -hmm. that needs to pee, yeah. that needs to breathe, that needs to stay safe from radiation and uh, that needs uh, to drink water. Yeah. So, of course. That we spend far much too much time keeping people alive we're, uh, uh, yeah, instead yeah, yeah. of exploring. That's what I like so, about but, robots. Yes, explore it. Send, send a few astronauts there. Bring intelligent science up there. Yeah, sure. Wonderful. Go out. Do it. I would like to be there with a the camera. Yeah, sure. I would be the first one to volunteer. <laughs> There's a mission now going around moon and returning to Earth. I'd love to be on board, but it's, let's face it, uh, it's, a, it's an idea of mine or it's a dream of mine, which is not going to happen. Probably not yeah. going to happen. No, I, but we, I still would like to go. I understand there. the feeling. This, I have mixed feelings. We talked about this before. I, 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 I yearned as a young man to go into space and it would be an amazing adventure. But I'm not sure. <clears throat> when it when it came down to, to it, whether I would really want to do it personally, because one of the things is, as we as I said, I love, I would love to do it. Come on, <laughs> well, I love I love to do it in principle, but I also love when the rovers take pictures of Mars. I feel like I'm there. I don't need yeah. I don't need to have a cameraman. I'm happy yeah. to have the rover there taking the picture, and the sure. images are just amazing. I feel like I, I'm there. Yeah, but when we talk about the future, we've talked about the things the the, the technological utopia that won't happen. There is an aspect of technology, and you you touch on it in a way that I in a, in a, I want to maybe it's a perversion of what you said, but we'll see. Again, thinking about Bad Lieutenant, believe it or not, you're you reading said, from a, a guide for the perplexed. You're from a guide. For, I'm reading yeah, from yeah, a guide yeah, okay, for the yeah. perplexed, which which you and I know what the subtitle comes from, and we'll let other people. Should can you show it to the camera yeah, okay. because of the bear? Yeah, that's... it's not a Photoshop. Lena, my wife, did it. <laughs> oh, okay. She was nervous oh, really? because the bear was right behind you. Yeah, wow. I, I I wasn't nervous, but I I minded because it had a very foul breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's get that. Can you, you've got that. Okay, excellent. Well, now from another movie from Bad Lieutenant, you said, which takes place in New Orleans after the after the flooding. Yeah, you said it was. It was as if every one of America's problems was located there, not least the crisis of government credibility. As far, so, as far as I was concerned, it was a perfect place to set the story. That interested me. Government at the time, you're talking about the government credibility of being able to hand of of keeping people safe uh, yeah. and, and, and 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 from from a flood. Well, sometimes you can't keep them from a disaster. Of course. So, but. The next question is, how do you take care of those who are afflicted? And the government response came very, very late. Oh, yes. And in a very timid way. We all remember that. And so we cannot avoid all the trials and tribulations for the human race. The question is the response. And of course, at the time post-Katrina, yeah. it was a collapse of, uh, let's say, public behavior, corruption in the police force, corruption in politics. It was, uh, uh, many things uh, coalesced at, at, at that time. It was very fascinating because the screenplay originally was written for the, um, for the city of New York. <laughs> and the opening sequence was taking place in the subway oh, where the bad lieutenant saved some a, a suicidal man from jumping in front of an incoming 
train. But I moved it into a flooded prison <laughs> where a prisoner is forgotten yeah. and the water That's is great. rising and rising <laughs> and the ceiling <laughs> is that close. Yeah. And, and finally, the bad lieutenant, Nicholas Cage, jumps into the brackish water where a snake <laughs> is slithering around and swimming and he saves him. And he, he minds that he ruins his cotton Swiss underwear <laughs> that cost him 45 bucks. <laughs> He's really miffed about that. So I invented that scene to adapt it for New Orleans and for a natural disaster that took everything off balance. Taking it off balance and the natural disaster, that's right. And that's the one aspect of the, the lack of government credibility and a lack of response appropriately to a, a natural disaster. But I want to take it forward now 10 years or I don't yeah. know how many long ago, but maybe 10 years since then. Um, a different kind of concern about government credibility that's partly technological. The loss we've seen in the last four years uh, in this country, mm -hmm. the credibility of government And the credibility of what you even see in the media going away because of the ability of technology, if you wish, to falsify reality. Are you well, concerned about uh, that? Yeah, yeah, sure. The, and all the fake news. But I think um, even though the media conformist for this or the, the other political part of the spectrum, you have a lot of possibilities through the internet and I find it fantastic to have it to go. You, you read, for example, very awful uh, remarks about the, the former, the, the previous Pope Benedict, yes. the Bavarian Pope. And, um, There was a session in, in Parliament 10 years ago in German Parliament at the Bundestag. And some of the left parties walked out because it delivered, delivered a speech. And, and I read the speech and it was the deepest about lawmaking that I've ever seen in my life. He was criticized for his attitude towards, uh, towards Jewish faith. And I, I said, wait a minute, let me read his uh, speech he delivered in Auschwitz. And in the website of the Vatican, you can read all the full speeches of all the popes. And, and it's a stunning speech. Three times in a short speech, the pope asks a question that in 2000 years, not a single pope dared to ask, where was God then? Where was he? Where was God when this barbarism and atrocities happened? Period. And you, you can read it in the internet. Use the internet. Use it intelligently. Intelligently. Use, use the sources. Uh, uh, even on television, you can, you can watch contrast programs. Watch Al Jazeera, for example. Yes. Because there's serious news and all of a sudden you hear news from parts of the world that are not covered by BBC or CNN or anything. Of course, you, you have to know that when it comes to Israel, it's going going pretty wild, yeah. but but you have to see it against its texture. Uh, look at Russian TV, some very intelligent political discourse, but of course you have to see it against the texture. You better see CNN against its texture or BBC or Fox. You can do that. You With can a do little that. bit, yes, little bit independent thinking, a little bit looking into direct sources. Exactly. The internet has a glorious side. Oh, absolutely. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a storehouse of, of information and misinformation. And I've often said that the, the problem of 
education right now. Yeah. When I was growing up, ed schools were to teach you a bunch of facts, but there's more facts in my phone yeah. than, than there is in all education. What we need to teach kids is to do exactly what you said, which is how to distinguish yeah. information from misinformation. And, and see it and read it. And, and a part of when we spoke about reading books, uh, there's a second thing, experience the world, the real world, as intense With, with intensity, uh, like I say to young, young filmmakers, rather than going four years to film school, why don't you work half a year as a bouncer in a sex club or as a guard in a, in a lunatic asylum? That's what makes you a filmmaker. That's or travel on foot. Of course, nobody travels on, on foot, but I have traveled on foot. Sure. And I've traveled large distances, like from Munich a to famous, Paris. You wrote a lovely book, which I was reading. Yeah, of walking in ice because uh, my mentor, an old woman, Lotte Eisner, was dying and I did not want her to die. I didn't want to allow this. So you, and, um, <clears throat> and because of walking experience, experiencing the real world on foot, all of a sudden gives you insights that are very, very deep. Absolutely. And I have a dictum, and I leave it with that dictum. The world reveals itself to those who travel on foot. And I say it without further explanation, because you will not start traveling on foot. You will not cross Canada from uh, from the West Coast to the East Coast. No, but I am planning a bunch of uh, walking travels, and maybe you and yeah. I could do one together sometime. Yeah, sure, yes. <laughs> I, yeah. I, 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 yeah. I love that idea, because it's totally different. Yeah. yeah. Now... You say values change from one generation to the next, and perhaps my grandchildren will find it ridiculous that I chose not to include the tape in Grizzly Man. But I doubt it, you say. Now that you're referring to the famous scene in Grizzly Man where, yeah. where there's the tape of, of Timothy and, and his girlfriend basically being eaten by yeah. him, which you don't allow the, the young, the, his ex-girlfriend to hear, yeah. you listen to, and, and you don't, don't show it. And, and I, I think that, you know, that was a choice, and I think it was a good yeah. choice. But But what I want to focus on is that values change, mores change over time, and you and I are of a certain age, and and even in the time when when we've been when we've been growing, things yeah. have changed immensely. But we live in a time now where we tend to view the where people want to view the past in terms of the of the sensibilities of the present. I just read that for the, just It's today, the sen Congress for the first time is talking about reparations for slavery. For people who are never yeah. slaves now, but maybe come from a society that has a uh, uh, that in a background, how how do you feel about this this notion of 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 rewriting the past in terms of the present? Well, it's a it's an attitude towards history, and it is looking at history from uh, the pedestal of today's enlightenment, of today's morality, of today's science, and of course, it was perfectly normal for our great, 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 great ancestors, uh, it, they found it perfectly all right to burn witches. They found it perfectly all right and natural that there, was, there were slaves. Even the Bible doesn't uh, deny it completely. Oh, and, absolutely. And, the Bible's full of slaves. And, and of course, uh, the American uh, Constitution uh, does not... Uh, Uh, does not mention them at all yeah. as human beings or so. So, of course, 
and and looking at history from today's perspectives, I think is um, is 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 a very dangerous way because we have to accept uh, the voyage that we have done as human beings, and the voyage is interesting in seeing, just seeing and noticing that we do not have witch burnings anymore, and seeing that capital punishment is vanishing more and more. Great, yes, we are we are on a voyage. And we should know where we came from. And and it's utterly absurd what this uh, cancel culture is doing or historical perspectives. Um, in San Francisco, I think 250 or so schools and colleges will be renamed. And the craziest of all, one, I think a high school uh, named after Abraham Lincoln. Yes. Good old Abe has to be renamed not because he was the one, the, the strongest power in abolishing slavery, because he treated the native populations, the First Nations, sure. badly. Yeah. Yeah. I, Happily, by the then, way, I'm, then we have to we have to abolish literally everyone. Everyone we has to abolish. Abo- That's the. I mean, lit- how can pretty much everyone? You're be happy. No, I just read that 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 change in name of, that Lincoln is going to stay. So that's at least uh, Lincoln been, is going to stay. stay yeah, but, one, but that he was on the list. Yeah, of being he deleted. was on the list, and and yeah. But but the idea of repaying for sins at the time of the past when they weren't sins is is is. Yeah. Uh, the worst view, it seems to me, of history, yeah. as you say, it's in some sense the arc of history. But as as Martin Luther King said, "Bend should bend upward." Yes, and 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 the better angels of our nature. Yes, it, uh, it denies us the the deeper insights in into our voyage, into our intellectual, into yeah. our ethical, and, into and, our historical and, and, uh, and voyage, and, and and somehow shuts off understanding for history completely. I think it is an a dangerous path uh, which uh, blinds us for um, the obstacles of the past and how how we overcame because we judge everything from our perspective today and we are sitting on the as we say in german we we sit on the high horse on the pedestal and and we judge oh yeah lincoln was bad because he treated the first nations badly my God, yeah, my, my, I, it makes me cringe in despair because I, I love history. Uh, absolutely. And it, it, if you love history, then the, the fact that you have to erase it is, is worrisome. Yeah. And it, it worries them even not just for the Lincolns of the world, but I guess I worry about the future politicians in a world where you are canceled for something you did 30 years earlier or when you were a 12 year old boy or a 15 year old boy or or woman, young woman or whatever, then how can anyone of any substance ever rise? Well, you have to have the, uh, the privilege of uh, youthful mistakes. Yes. You're not doing these kind of mistakes when you are over 60 or so and running for office of the president of the United States. Uh, the political correctness has been wildly uh, somehow challenged through Trump, and and I think uh, it it was it was a good moment. It was a good moment because the the system has been paralyzed. 
in in a certain way and we have a great we have a great bonus from uh, the Trump presidency because he looked and he recognized that there's a forgotten America the heartland Nobody speaks about the heartland. Heartland people are not the heroes in our movies. You do not see them on the news at night. And uh, they are disenfranchised. They are not as well paid at, at like on, on mm. both coasts. And friends of mine said, oh, yeah, we have elections now. T 12 years ago, I remember. And they said, oh, don't worry about Wisconsin and Iowa. And so <laughs> they are the flyovers. And my heart stood still and I said, what? What did you say? What did I hear? Flyovers. Those, this is the heartland. Has any one of you ever been in Wisconsin? No, they haven't. But I said, I have worked in Wisconsin. I've made a film in Wisconsin. I've made a film in Louisiana. I've made a film in Cherokee, North Carolina, or part of a film. So the flyovers and, and this attitude of neglect was laid completely open by Trump. Yeah, he exploited it. He didn't really care about it, but he exploited it. I, I do not, I, I cannot step inside yes. of his mind, but uh, I think it was good that he that he yeah. made it visible. Sure, I and agree politics, with that. Politics, if it wants to survive in the United States, has to find a much better attitude towards the heartland. Speaking of no matter, no matter if they think differently from you uh, on the East Coast or the West Coast, no matter. Speaking they of are this, Americans, uh, absolutely, I, I never and I love, I love them. The best, the best people that you find in in Wisconsin. My car breaks down. You know what happens? The first car that approaches stops <laughs> and helps you. And half an hour later, in this middle of nowhere, the next car that comes also stops. <laughs> and then a truck stops. Everybody <laughs> stops stop to help. and helps you. No, and I was, I was accepted as a, as a sixth child in a family of five children in, in Pittsburgh when I was a young man and stranded and, and literally homeless. A family picked me up and allowed me to live in their attic. Wow. So I've I've seen the very very best, and they were not east or west coast. What comes to mind? Have you seen the movie Nomadland now? Have you I seen have it? seen it. Yes, and then that sort of it seems encapsulates a little percent uh, um, in microcosm a little bit of that. Uh, Do you think you, you, you? No, it's it's more about solitude and it's more about spaces, about empty spaces and emptiness in human lives and and also touches a chord of uh, American mobility. Yeah. This, that means moving the frontier, moving to the west. Now it has moved all the way to Alaska. Uh, now it's moving into space. So America is still somehow on the move. And and it reflects some some something that's deeply embedded in the American soul, and that's why the film has has caught the attention. Okay, I I, I was also taken by, in some sense, the these people who don't have anything, the community sense of community that they built among themselves yeah. to support each yeah, other. Yeah, something that has to do with solitude yeah. and uh, uh, in in a way with solidarity. Yeah, but it's uh... solidarity, and and I think uh, no matter what you 
uh, what you think about American politics, uh, you you do see a, a certain amount of solidarity emer re or emerging, and and it's a good thing. It's a good. That's nice. To, okay, good well, good time for. Okay, good, well, that's, good that's, times. Good times for American politics. Interesting. That you're, very that's, interesting it, times. It's I, interesting times, and and and. But I haven't heard them called good times. That's good. That's nice to hear you say yeah. that. It'll be interesting to hear what people think. This book, Guide for the Perplex, which, as I say, I know well, it begins with a foreword by Harmony Korine, yeah. and I can't help but read this because I want to ask you. It says, "Werner Herzog hates chickens." This is a fact. This is a consistent theme throughout his films. It is clear to me that he hates chickens, and this is one of the reasons why he's always been one of my favorite directors. I, too, hate chickens. <laughs> I've never have, known you to hate chickens, so no, no, I had to ask. No, no, no. It's, um, no, it's something different. I, they, they frighten me because the flatness of their... Uh, when, when you look at the head of a chicken, it's very... Very narrow in yeah. the eye here, in the yeah. eye there. That narrow, the kind of stupidity looking yeah. at you. Yes. And it's overwhelming and it's kind of <laughs> frightening. <laughs> and, and I have had many chicken in my, uh, in my movies, like the end of, uh, Stroshek, which is about dancing chicken. Mm -hmm. And it's somehow the best, maybe the best and craziest that I ever filmed <laughs> dancing chicken that nobody can stop anymore. <laughs> Not even police uh, can stop the dancing chicken in their cage, actually in Cherokee, North Carolina filmed. And I had chicken in very special training to dance longer than they normally would do oh, for, really? for the tourists, do the barn shuffle dance. And um, you see hypnotized chicken in my movies, in some of my movies. You can actually hypnotize him if you put the beak on the ground and then with a piece of chalk draw a, a very fast straight line from them. They stay like that, hypnotized uh, uh, oh, and really? stare oh, at the straight line. Ah. You can hypnotize chicken. You could do it. Even I could do it. <laughs> yeah. No, I do not hate them. I, and and by the way, I I like to eat them once in a in a while. A real good roasted chicken on your barbecue is priceless. <laughs> they somehow reconcile me with their stupidity. Yes. Well, I I as you know, I've I've stopped eating chickens yeah. and meat, and and it's an interesting thing for me. So, I'm in the middle of a. No, I still I still like to to eat a good solid steak once yeah, in a while. Yeah, I know I can understand. But, but I eat less than before. And I think we talked about that because partly because of this consumerism, the fact we realize that in terms of climate change, for yeah, example, the imprint, that, the, the imprint, imprint of cattle, yeah, is fairly high. Yeah, that's that was certainly where I began. Probably the and the moral issue is a different yeah. one, but the but the imprint uh, the, yeah. the, the, of of yeah, of, and uh, this is why I have only one belt or one pair of shoe or two pairs yeah. pairs of shoe because uh, uh, the cow uh, does not uh, generate itself in the wild, and and the cow does not volunteer to give away its hide for your purse, your wallet, your belt, and your shoes. Yeah, absolutely. But I want to talk about nature and science because yeah. because we've talked about it personally together as a scientist. We've talked science a lot, you, you and I, and and it was also what drew me to you uh, initially. I mean, obviously the films had, but pr as yeah. a person, and it was in Sundance. Uh, 
uh, when, one of the reasons that we that I wanted to give you that award, uh, mm-hmm. which was for which was for science in a feature film, and 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 it was interesting because the feature which meant a fiction. And and we we all the movies we saw were awful, and and we would decide to expand it, and and mm-hmm. and there's a narrative flow to Grizzly Men that made us think, okay, it's 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 a story. Yeah, but, I still but, have that flow in me. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and and it was the scene uh, where where you, near the end where you where you zoom in on the bear and you say, I look at the bear, I don't see. I don't see a face. I don't see. I don't see. You know, caring. I don't. I. I. I and and you sort Compassion of say here, or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was so powerful and because that is nature. Yeah. It, it's against the disinfication nature, which you say here in this interview. You say he can about Treadwell. He considered mm-hmm. nature to be wondrously harmonious, but for me, the world is overwhelmingly chaotic, hostile, and murderous. Not some sentimental Disney esque place. The world does not care about us. Nature doesn't care about our happiness, yeah. and. But that doesn't make it bad. It makes it wondrous. Sure, of course. And and uh, it's magnificent that we have this world. And of course, we have our frictions and we are challenged and we uh, benefit from its benign side. In fact, yeah, you, it's for unforgiving, but it's pleasant. I read that you like, used to like to spend with your son summers in Alaska. Yes. That because of the, it's so attractive. But But in some sense, nature is... For me, more attractive because it's unforgiving. If it was built around us like an amusement park, it wouldn't be. Life would would not be so worth living in some sense. The challenge sure, of, of course, life. yeah. Now we we have not only the best of all worlds, we have the only world and the <laughs> best thinkable world. There's nothing like that. You have in your films filmed the extremes of nature, which is interesting to me. I mean, and and. Um, and uh, from volcanoes to uh, to to under the the ice in in Antarctica, um, and and it's mm. it's those extremes in some sense that are that maybe attract you the most or no? No, but um, in these locations, something significant became visible that otherwise wouldn't have been visible. Under the ice of Antarctica, you encounter a science fiction world a world that doesn't seem to be of our own planet. So it's totally fascinating. And of course, volcanoes give you an incredible insight into the fragility of of our existence and of our planet. And we know if there's a real big event, it may obscure the sky for a decade and that would be our end Yes, as, as a species. Or many other things like a meteorite hit. I made a film yeah. on meteorites, fireball. If a real big meteorite event is going to happen, it will be the end of the, of the, of our species. Cockroaches have a much better survival yes, chance. Yes, that's right. Uh, or, or, uh, reptiles even have a better survival chance or for example if we have a, a very massive solar flare which could come it occurs every few hundred years um then the internet will be gone we, we talked about that in in in, and, Lone, in fact i actually was my i got to talk about that in lo yes. and behold in, in and the, that's exactly and that's the danger yes and we become more my uh, wife experienced uh, the the ripple effects of the hurricane sandy in new york uh, where she stayed, 14th Street, blackout all the way down to uh, Wall Street and up to 34th Street. There was no running water. 
There was no financial transactions anymore. Uh, stores couldn't open because they have electrical doors. You couldn't uh, get money, cash money out of a cash, uh, of a ATM machine. Um, the lifts wouldn't go. Tens of thousands of people after a day were desperately searching and wandering around for a toilet because your toilet flush wouldn't function anymore. Huh. You had no water. Of you course. couldn't brush your teeth. The interconnected. You could not make connections with your cell phone. The towers were down. You could, I, I mean, and that was just a tiny, tiny bit of experience. Of the taste of what, what, may, of what, what could come, come from the solar flare, the sensitivity. You couldn't buy food, you couldn't cook food, you couldn't have water, you couldn't have electricity. So, and the solar flare could, could make it much, much worse and it could be worldwide. And then again, the Amish have a great chance. <laughs> and, and again, some Inuit, uh, who are hunters, gatherers would be great. And some, um, um, goat herders in the Altai mountains <laughs> in Central Asia would have a good time. They'd uh, be all right. Yeah. They're, they're not sensitive to that. The, the interconnectedness, which lo and behold yeah. is a wonderful film about, um, is part of a, what intrigued me as I began to think about this, we've, I know you're fascinated by your interest in science, but it, it hit me that I think at least, Four of the five last documentaries you made have been scientific. Lo and behold, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, yeah. the movie about volcanoes, the movie about meteorites. For me, what I what what is so wonderful about it is 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 science is a part of our culture, and and the fact that you are fascinated by it, the 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 things that will reflect on our social cultural future have a scientific component and it and mm -hmm. uh, and it's unfortunate that some people are afraid to uh, to go to dwell to go in that area and and and, uh, and the fact that uh, I see more and more of your films going in there mm -hmm. fi I find fascinating the fact the the tying of, which is part of what this podcast is all about the tying of culture and science yeah. is is so important but so ignored in some sense science yeah. is appreciated for its technology but not for its cultural yeah. enrichment it's cultural value yeah and and you uh, see it very clearly articulated of all sources if i may point to uh, the unabomber in his manifesto about the future of technological civilization and some of it very prescient and and of course i i do not uh, adhere to his ideology yes, sure i do not condone his crimes and, and yet uh, he has, uh, and, and the impact the manifesto has had at the time, the kind of dust it, it, it kicked up uh, was enormous. And, uh, and here you have a, a, a source where you can read what's coming at us. Well, it's interesting that I, I, the technology uh, always prevails over, <clears throat> over ethical behavior. Oh, I see. And over freedoms, hmm. you see the the the, the um, cell phones that we have are more important than our freedom to uh, throw it uh, <laughs> under a pillow and leave it alone. Yeah? yeah, we we give up, we forfeit a good part of our freedom because we are fascinated by the technological sure. progress sure. Uh, of it's the seductive. cell phone. Yeah, it's seductive, and it's yeah. it's, it's it has become addictive, and and it has negative side effects. Well, we know about it. Yeah, although it's a wonderful tool, but we have to learn how to use it.
Yeah, and one of the one of the side effects, which kicks us back to somewhat at the beginning, and this is 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 that people don't read as much. People read tweets, but not reading. Yes. And I, I think when I talk about reading, yeah. I, I can't help but mention that for me, I've done we a lot of media and radio and other things, but the most enjoyable hour I've ever spent on the radio was having you and Cormac McCarthy yeah. together talking with eloquence and competence on early modern humans. Yeah. And when your movie, The, the, the Cave of Forgotten Views yeah. came out. And then the, the loveliest scene for me, which I want people to go and listen to, is at the end of that, when you brought all the pretty horses with you. I don't know if you remember I, that. I re yes, I remember. I, re I read, I think I read the last paragraph. You read the last paragraph. And this is just great prose. Yeah, such, it was, it, to me, it was the best. Such a wonderful book. Is it still somehow yeah. available on the internet? Oh, oh, or? oh, oh I, I believe you can listen to that piece. And to listen to you read the last paragraph of, of, of uh, All the Pretty all Horses. All the Pretty Horses, is, yeah. It, it was just, it, of all the times I've been on the media, that that's, and, and it's just, again, to me, yeah. it was this one, not just bringing you and Cormac McCarthy together, but the, the the merging of science and culture and and thought is just yeah it's delicious yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and, and and you know Lawrence uh, since I couldn't venture out with a camera and actors in crews or whatever so I spent uh, a good time of writing I wrote two books since September and they will be released here in the states yeah, I'm jealous I thought sure we were talking I've no, only no, written come one on, it's, uh, it's a meaning that uh, I uh, understood uh, part of the duties that I have understood my destiny and part of it is trying to be a good soldier and of course there are duties and responsibilities and loyalty and courage and all these things and part of my duties is uh, when you can't uh, write uh, when you cannot shoot a film you better do write like uh, of walking in ice or uh, conquest of the useless. I know that my writings will live longer than my movies. That's interesting. If you think that's true, well, that's interesting. Well, uh, people challenge my opinion yeah, and, and I've been wrong many times, but um, I, hope they I, both I have the well. feeling I, deep inside, I have the, the sensation they may live longer than my films. As a, as a writer, as someone who's written books, I, 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 I share that sense of, of, of that they well, they'll, that's the part of me that will live on. And in fact, I have to say, I share with you, I wrote my book during this for exactly the same reason. I felt I can't be a frontline physician in the yeah. pandemic, but what can I do? I, at least I can write. And so it's something you can do. Yeah. And yeah. Now I want to end. I want to take us this mm. last topic, even though the beauty, we, you know, it's we've reached to the pinnacle of science and, and mm -hmm. I want to end because we're both villains. Yes, okay. <laughs> and, and you are well, a wonderful, I, much more, as I say, you're a villain in Jack Reacher, and you told me that the, they cut out the parts that were even more terrifying. Yes, yeah, <laughs> it was too, and, too and, much yeah, for the timid audiences. Yeah. And, the, and, the, and the Mandalorian too. But, but there's a quote about evil that I find interesting. And yeah. you said, and I, 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 it, I know where it is in the book, but I have it written here. There's such a thing as the bliss of evil. So maybe you want to comment on that. I couldn't resist yeah, asking well, about that. Yeah, well, it had to do in, in giving instructions to Nicolas Cage. Mm -hmm. He said to me, Werner, I know uh, that you hate to have endless discussions about motivations of an actor and his possible childhood and all this. I don't like it either. Yeah. And, and he said, but I don't know how to handle this opening scene in the film 
where he um, forces a young couple uh, and, and the, the girl into awful things to do with him. And he said, I, how, how do I, how do I show this kind of, of evil? And I said to him, Nicholas, you know what? There's a bliss of evil. There's such a thing like the bliss of evil. And he said, no more. I, I got it. And I said, uh, we roll the camera now and you will turn the pig loose. Turn, <laughs> turn the hog loose. The hog inside of you. Oh. And he does it. And we He's... shot it once or twice and that was that. Wow. Oh, and, and you see the joy, the bliss of evil. He understood the part. Yeah, well, that's, those words caught it. And I think, um, I think that's why... That's why I was I, I've, I was so happy to be a, a sort of villain. I mean, I, the, the, those character, that aspect of, of humanity is is so interesting to explore in 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 writing and in in in, in literature. Yeah, and deep in, dark recesses. The deep dark recesses where we yeah. we're afraid to go. They reside in all of us, but we're afraid to go there. And um, and so I had to talk yeah, about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but we shouldn't be afraid to to look into it, face what's out out there. Right. Just well, face it and and be courageous to look into abysses that give you vertigo. Well, I couldn't have if I wanted to sum up one of the one of the wonderful things about the films you make and and a human being is that you're not afraid to look into those abysses. You don't jump, but you look, and I yes. think that's the that's the key aspect. So so let's end. What's next? What what what's next for you? Well. Um, it's a little bit working with publishers at the moment and uh, printing two books in translation of the books. Um, a film with my older son about, of all things, colonization of space. Very fascinating. A feature film I like to do in West Africa. Oh, I would love that. A feature film... I would like, uh, yeah, there are two, three, four feature film projects. One never knows what um, will come up. At the moment, uh, I can't really tackle them, but it's okay. I take it as it comes. I take it as it comes. And ta speaking of taking as it comes, I can't help but end with, we made Salt and Fire, I remember a year before I was on stage with you in Mexico, and I said, Werner, you've always promised me I could be a villain in one of your films. When am I? And then a year later, I got the script. Yes. So I'm going to say is, what's next for me in your movies? Uh, <laughs> well, we can make you a young lover. Okay. That's... You would be miscast. We, we better take one of the one of the young, under twenty or twenty five year old Hollywood bows, um, a scientist, always. Uh, I hope you I would have always that be good, but but as a villain, you are always convincing. I think. Well, I would as love to be a, well, as a performance. As a performance, thank and, you. And same for me. I mean, uh, uh, when um, Jack Reacher came out, my wife got frantic calls from a girlfriend in Paris, and she said, "Lena, we saw Jack Reacher. We saw your husband. Is that really your <laughs> husband?" Lena says, "Yes," and she says. You know, are you really married to him? We we have we have a free room. You can take sh if you need. You can take shelter. We have a free room for you all the time. And and you know, now hearing that, I knew I was good in the film. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, look, I hope we both get a chance to be villains once again. It would be a, once again the high point of or our life. Rogues. Uh, rogues. Rogues, rogues, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And it's been a pleasure to to be a rogue with you here today. I thank you so much for your time. And as <sighs> always, it's just such a joy to be with you. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Origins Podcast is produced by Lawrence Krauss, Nancy Dahl, John and Don Edwards, Gus and Luke Holwerda, and Rob Zepps. Audio by Thomas Amison. Web design by Redmond Media Lab. Animation by Tomahawk Visual Effects. And music by Rickolis. To see the full video of this podcast, as well as other bonus content, visit us at patreon.com slash originspodcast. <laughs>